words of our hymn were written by a man who recognized that maturing Christians feel lonely in the world. They look around and they see a wilderness, not lush pastures and glorious mountains. And they set their minds and their hearts on something that transcends the earth wherever on the earth God may have placed them. It's also the theme of the text from my sermon in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, we find references made to people who, in salutary ways, applied the faith that God had given to them to the circumstances of their lives. Having referred to some of them, the author says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. As thoughtful and patriotic Americans, it's hard for us to come to a holiday like the 4th of July and not find ourselves thinking about our nation at its past and in that past, finding many, many things for which to be proud and for which to be grateful. From the sustaining faith of the pilgrims to the character-defining struggles of the Great Depression. From the lofty literary heights of the Declaration of Independence to those great victories wrought by the armed forces and industry of America in World War II. From that hitty area, era of exploration and expansion of the 19th century to the turmoil of the 20th in which we decided that as a people we really meant it when we said that all men are created equal. We look back on such things as these and our hearts beat faster with a justified sense of pride and gratitude. In things that are spoken and written on and about the 4th of July, much is made of the words freedom and liberty. As if these things, these words in themselves have great significance, and as if these things by themselves are conditions that men should seek. But if I'm not mistaken, freedom and liberty are nothing but words that in fact have little meaning to those who have no personal drive and no well-thought-out political philosophy. The freedom of worship means nothing to those who have no desire to worship God. The freedom of speech has no value to those who have no thoughts worthy of expression. The freedom of assembly is an unmeasured commodity to those whose thoughts are filled only with themselves and place no value in discourse. The freedom of travel means nothing to those without curiosity and ambition. Freedom is a hollow concept until it combines with deep thought and ardent passion, and then it's no longer a thing in itself, but becomes the right to express those thoughts and to pursue those passions. 
And this also means then that freedom and liberty are states that simply cannot be denied to an independent, self-reliant people who demand them. The freedoms that are enshrined in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution are not the source, but they are the result of the aspirations of men and women who insisted on the right to stand on their own two feet and not on someone else's. Recognizing this, recognizing these values that stand at the very core of the most significant portions of our national history, at least some of us see alarming signs in the present of America that our nation is changing in ways that are making it weaker rather than stronger, less robust, less dynamic, and less free. To us, it seems that year after year, election after election, decades after decade, Americans are declaring that those values that once identified us as a people are no longer of great and supreme significance to us. And like Esau exchanging his precious birthright for something of mere passing worth, the descendants of the pilgrims have offered have opted to rely less and less upon themselves and more and more upon their government, to be less and less independent, and to be more and more dependent, with the result that in terms of its essential character, the America of tomorrow will be but a shadow of the America of yesterday. Remembering the many evidences of vitality and strength in the past, In seeing signs of apathy and drift in the present, many of us come to the 4th of July with mixed emotions. But to us as a worshiping congregation, such thoughts as these are of secondary importance. They are important, but they are not of primary importance. For we come together as a people whose highest allegiance is not to this nation or to any other, but to God and to his Son, Jesus Christ. We are Christ ones. We are Christians, and as such, our thoughts and our evaluations are of a different sort. We see the hand of God in the history of all nations, including our own. In the second chapter of Daniel, we find these words, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. And our faith in such a God gives us the peace that comes from knowing that whether America continues to be a great nation and a leader among the nations of the world or slides downward into irrelevance and disintegration, this is the will of God. And still we will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. But as Christians, we are aware of another kind of change in America one that is far more significant and potentially much more deadly than its philosophical and political compromises. I speak of the great and the obvious moral decline of America. We see signs of that decline on every side, from things that seem almost trivial to gross subjects. For example, as a people who would still probably give nodding agreement to the principle of the Bible that we should love our neighbors the same way they love ourselves, we don't signal our turns. 
We don't respect our elders. We dress and we behave as if we never heard of modesty. In our everyday behavior, we cheat on exams, we lie on resumes, and we leave the shop early, only after having a friend agree to clock out for us. By our laws, we've denigrated the value of marriage. We've undervined the sanctity of life. These are but a few of many symptoms of a great cultural shift that has taken place in our society in the last half century, a cultural shift that alarms us as individuals and challenges us as a church. I'd like to talk with you about this. I'd like to talk with you about the moral decline of America, how it impacts the church, and how it impacts us as individuals. Regarding this moral decline, there is a question that we might ask. There are some in the church who would say that we must ask, and it is the question, is the moral drift of America the fault of the American church? If your convictions regarding the cultural responsibilities of the church aligned with mine, then you'll be amazed that anyone would even think to ask such a question. But it is a question that is being asked, and that the church is at fault is a claim that is being made. Not long ago, the national outreach director of our denomination stood before our presbytery. He made some detailed reference to the moral decline of America, and then he said, friends, this has happened on our watch. I sought him out after that meeting to make sure that I had understood what he is saying. And indeed, he was saying that the moral decline of America is the fault of the people and the church of Jesus Christ. There is a view that is fairly common among evangelicals, and particularly evangelicals who more or less identify themselves with the Reformed tradition, and that is that the church has a cultural mandate from Christ. The cultural mandate is an idea that says that we in Christ, individually and corporately as a church, are called by him to move out into the community with the goal of having an impact on that community. It is not the view that from time to time, Christians may have an opportunity to express the goodness of God and reflect the holiness of God and make a difference. It is the understanding that we have to do this, that this is a commandment from our God. This translates into certain conclusions. One of them is that if we're not doing that, individually or as a church, we are sinning. We are disappointing the one who gave his blood and body for our salvation, and we need immediately to make amends and change this aspect of our lives and our ministry. And another conclusion is that if the community around us is sliding away from those principles that God has declared, then that slide has to be our responsibility. This idea that the church has a cultural mandate from Christ is clear, it's focused, it's consistent with itself. The problem arises when we open our Bibles and try to justify it. There is no cultural mandate for the church to be found anywhere on the pages of God's Word. That's a strong statement. To some extent, I'm preaching to people who aren't even here, but I hope that you understand what I'm saying. If you disagree with it, 
I would enjoy an opportunity to talk with you about this and give you a chance to prove that I'm wrong. Paul wrote to the Romans. Rome was a city where there was a pagan temple on almost every corner. Idolatry was rampant, which means that people were worshiping gods that do not even exist and shunning the worship of the God who does. Read the book of Romans, and there you will find no admonition for Christians to carry picket signs before the doors of these pagan temples. You will not even find a hint that Christians were supposed to invite these pagan worshipers to their church. But you will find in Romans a clear warning for Christians to guard themselves against the influence of godless philosophies and religions. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Corinth was a city in which sexual immorality was rampant. In fact, in the ancient world, if someone was doing something that maybe he shouldn't have been doing, someone would wink and say, you know, John is doing the Corinthian. And that became a phrase around the Mediterranean world for doing something that was sexually unacceptable. Read 1 Corinthians, read 2 Corinthians, and there you will find no instruction to the church to try to shut down houses of ill repute and these activities. There you will find no suggestion that people engage these things should be even invited to the church. But there you will find a strong word about protecting the church from such practices and those who engage in them. We find these words, and I'm paraphrasing in the sixth chapter of Hebrews. Not only are your strenuous efforts to reach the lost ineffective, but your preoccupation with them is distracting you from your need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And in James 1, and again I paraphrase, religion in its purest form involving, involves caring for your own and guarding yourselves from the poisonous influence of the world. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, and again I'm paraphrasing, make it your aspiration to work with your hands and with respect to those outside the church to mind your own business. There is no cultural mandate from Christ for the church printed clearly or even alluded to anywhere on the pages of the New Testament. But beyond that, when we consider this question, is the moral decline of America somehow the fault of Christians and the church? We find another class of scripture that helps us answer that, and that is a group of scriptures that place the responsibility for sin solely on the shoulders of the sinners. You remember Genesis 3 on the record of the flood, uh, the record of the fall. I'm sh your memory is way off if you thought that. My goodness, I'm ashamed of you. How, how long you've been a member of this church? Wow. Genesis 3 is the fall of Adam and Eve. And you remember after the fall, when God finally got Adam's attention and Eve's attention, the first thing that Adam did was point to Eve and say, it's her fault. The first thing that Eve did was point to the snake and say, it's his fault. But God would have none of that. God said, Adam, you alone are responsible for your sin. He said, Eve, you alone are culpable for your sin. James says, that when a person sins, guilt for that sin is his, and it is his alone. 
And in the first chapter of Romans, Paul refers to the restraining grace of God, even in the lives and consciences of non-believers. But he says that if non-believers persist in their pursuit of sin, God will release his grips in stages and let them sink to ever lower levels of depraved behavior. This means that if America is in a state of moral decline, the fault lies with the American people individually and corporately and not upon churches or Christians who are living in their midst. Is the moral decline of America our fault? In my opinion, the Bible says absolutely not. But this decline does affect the church. For the moral decline of America translates into the moral decline of Americans. Polls indicate that most Americans, more than half, see nothing wrong with unmarried people having sex. And a growing number have no objection to the homosexual lifestyle. These are facts that reflect the attitudes of most Americans in our time. Preachers know this. Elders know this. Youth leaders know this. Sunday school teachers know this. And knowing this places all who publicly represent Christ in any way in a very real quandary. The reason for that is that numbers are important in the church. I've been a Christian for almost 50 years, and all of my life, I've been aware that numbers are important. Pastors get together, and those whose churches are growing find subtle ways to let that be known in a conversation. Pastors whose churches are not growing are strangely quiet in those conversations. When I was a young Christian, there was something called the church growth movement, and the idea was that if you're doing something right, if you're preaching the gospel, if your ministry is what God intends it to be, said to preachers and to churches, then your church will grow. The other side of which is that if your church is not growing, then you're doing something wrong because God wants your church to grow. Another one of those popular ideas of the evangelical community that finds no warrant from the scriptures whatsoever, and yet that does not stop its popularity or its promulgation. The impact the moral decline of, the, of America has on the church is the constant and very real temptation to compromise the clear moral teachings of the Bible so as not to offend people, so as not to lose people, so as to continue to count them in whatever senses are taken. The reason for this is found in examples from the non-church world. A man is stopped by a policeman for speeding. A woman is caught embezzling funds from her employer. A boy is caught cheating on a test. A girl is caught shoplifting. And how do these people react when they've been caught doing something that is wrong? In a very few cases, one would wipe tears of remorse from his eyes, smile sheepishly at the one who caught him, thank him so much, and saying, I'm going to change my life from now on. But that's rare. In most cases, one would deny his guilt, one would blame someone else for the offense, or try to excuse it, 
and express anger and resentment toward them who caught them in the very act. This is human nature at its very best. Preachers know this. Elders know this. Youth leaders and Sunday school teachers know this. Which the result then is that the strong temptation in the church is not to mention the sins that most Americans approve of and probably are engaged in, or at least not to call them sins. The temptation is to refer to them, if they are referred to at all in sympathetic tones, calling them mistakes or errors of judgment, but never as sins that offend a holy God. I remind you that the preaching of the gospel always begins with a call to repentance. John the Baptist appeared and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus appeared and his preaching was summarized with the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God spoke to Cain after he had killed his brother and denied doing it and tried to shift the blame. And God told Cain, you know, sin lies at the door at this very moment. And when the first Christian sermon was preached in the history of the world, Peter spoke to those who heard, and he said, you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. All preachers and church leaders know that the first part of human life the gospel addresses is that sin that condemns us and alienates us from God. But in a climate in which acts we know to be sin are commonly accepted or winked at, the tendency is to refocus the message until the gospel we preach is not the gospel at all. I feel sorry for young men entering the ministry in these morally tumultuous times, and particularly for those who are pastoring very small churches with a a tenuous existence where every person counts. I've been in the ministry for 45 years this month, and I still sometimes hesitate to say things that I know to be both true and important because I know that they're going to offend some people. This fear must even be more pronounced among the very young. The temptation to compromise is great. Compromise is a slippery slope that sucks the vitality out of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's watch one another. The moral decline of America affects us individually as Christians. When I was a boy and then a young Christian, the values of America were very close to the values of the Christian faith. Life was sacred. Marriage was respected. Sex outside of marriage was wrong. To have a baby before marriage was a scandal. It was front page news when cadets at the Air Force Academy were caught cheating on an exam. Things done in closets were kept in the closets. But in the relatively short time that I have known Christ as Savior and tried to serve him as Lord, all of this has changed drastically. When many of us were young, the values we were exposed to, whether at home or in school, whether in the church or on television, were all the same, with the result that there was virtually universal agreement about what was right and what was wrong. This became an external conscience that guided our lives and limited our choices. 
Today, there is great moral confusion in America with the majority of voices belonging to those who oppose the values of the Bible. This makes it easier and more likely that Christians will succumb to temptations that their parents and their grandparents would not even have considered. And as all sin deters Christian growth, this is particularly true of conspicuous sin. It preoccupies our mind. It clouds our thinking. It carries us away from Christ and further into the darkness of the world. The presence of conspicuous sin makes it likely that the sinner will shun the worship of God, the fellowship of his people, and the instruction of his word, hurting himself and hurting the church. One of the effects of the moral decline of America is the moral decline of Christians. And finally, for those believers who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who are sincerely struggling to grow in their faith and applying that faith to life, who desire above all else the pleasure of God and grieve over the decline of the culture around them, there is a marked sense of isolation and loneliness in the world. In Hebrews 11, we find a catalog of great men and women from faith history. And at least through many of their experiences, we find a common element, and that is their loneliness. The first mentioned is Abel, who was resented by his brother for his righteousness and his blessed relationship with God. And then Enoch, who stood out so uniquely in his generation that God took him without Enoch having to pass through the grave. Next mentioned is Noah, who for 120 years endured the slings and the arrows, the sarcasm and the hatred of those who would soon perish in the flood. And then Abraham, who lived in places where he knew there was no fear of God. We find the name of Sarah a woman who loved God but felt the judgment of others because of her barrenness, and Joseph, who suffered the disapproval of his brothers and lived as a stranger in Egypt, and Moses, who was called to be a leader of a people who never fully accepted or appreciated him. And then in our text, the author of Hebrews refers to these great heroes of faith as strangers and pilgrims on the earth. If you're here this morning as a serious Christian, you love God, you trust in his son for the saving of your soul, you desire nothing more than knowing more and more about God and living a life that is increasingly pleasing and useful to him. Sometimes even in your church, perhaps in your home, but certainly in the world, you feel like a stranger and a pilgrim. You long for conversations that rise above the banal and the trite. You hunger for the fellowship of those who share your passion for the things of God. You would love to see a movie or listen to a song or buy a swimming suit that doesn't violate your sense of what is right and good. As Christians, that awareness of our alienation in the world is very real. And it can have a harmful effect on our efforts to grow as Christians. When so few others care, it's easy for the serious Christian eventually to ask, 
Why should I care? And so many others are living and talking in ways that dishonor Christ, it's easy for someone eventually to say, well, in Rome, live as the Romans live. In such times as these, it's helpful for us to remember how lonely and isolated Abel and Noah and Abraham surely felt. And to remember that the alienation that our Lord Jesus experienced, alienation in the world and often even alienation among believers. The text that I read ends by speaking of these faithful men and women who strive to serve God in the darkness of the world. And it says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And the next chapter begins, therefore. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Let us pray. Our Father, you have called us to be different. In our dress, in our manners, in our speech, in our thoughts, in our aspirations, in our habits, you have called us to be different. We live in a place that increasingly ignores or mocks the things of Christ. You have called us to honor those things. We live in the midst of a people who are perishing. You have placed within our hearts the highways to Zion. Oh God, I, I pray for myself and I pray for all those hearing my voice that we might recognize just how deep our alienation is from those who live around us. And rather than be discouraged by this, may it cause us to lift our eyes and to place them firmly on your son, Jesus Christ, that we might follow him, that we might honor him all of the days of our lives until at last a triumphal entry is afforded to us into that city which he has prepared for us. For this, we give you our praise in Jesus.